The Choose Love movement offers no-cost solutions that keep our kids safe, providing them with the skills and tools they need to flourish. Join us in our mission to create the world we want to live in, one that's connected and compassionate. Check us out at chooselovemovement.org. Together, we can choose love. Uh, I want to introduce Aaron Stark to all the Choose Love podcast listeners, and I'm just so thankful for you to come on to our podcast and share with our audience. Uh, A lot of educators, a lot of parents, and some probably older students. Um, But Erin, you have a uh, TED Talk that went absolutely viral, almost 15 million views. And the title of that TED Talk is, I Was Almost a School Shooter. Wow. So you've done the whole news gamut. You've talked about this and you have an incredible story. And and I believe your story is the reason that you looked at the Alex Jones trial in a different way than the other people uh, did that were watching it from, you know, I mean, I got so many messages, oh, you know, take him to the cleaners, destroy him. He's evil. But, but I knew that he's not an evil person. He is a person that's in pain, hurt people, hurt people. And you know, this, um, probably just as well as anyone else, um, because you were almost a school shooter. You had a plan to kill as as many people, um, no no targets in particular. It didn't really matter. You've said you just wanted to uh, to to hurt as many people as you could because you were hurting. And can you tell us a little bit about your story so people can get to know you a little bit and understand how that almost came to be? Uh, absolutely. And first, thank you for having me on. It's a it's very honor for me to have, be on here today. I um, I really look up to you and your story and you, your journey has very much inspired me. So thank you for having me on. Um, I I grew up in a really dark and violent and chaotic family. The first five years of my life I, with my birth father, I would describe it like living in a Stephen King movie, like every kind of abuse you can imagine, um, mm-hmm. physical, sexual, mental, watching the most depraved acts in front of me, just I, I, my very first memory ever in life, the, the start point of my existence is laying on my bloody mom's body while looking up at my dad when he had a tire iron in his hand, looking and I'm screaming at him, you just killed my mom. Oh my God. And she wasn't dead, but he had beaten her bloody and unconscious. And that's, that's literally zero for me. That's where I start. Oh. And that, uh, as I grew older, I, I, we were very nomadic after about five years old, my mom left my birth father got with my stepdad and it went from Stephen King to more like Scarface where it was crack cocaine and crime and running from the authorities, moving from place to place all the time. I went to about 40 different schools growing up, never went to a school more for more than six months. I was constantly the new kid. Um, I was dirty and smelly and it was always because we were moving always because we had it was the authorities kicking us out or we had um, evictions or we had uh, social workers looking in on us. And each time was, it was never a peaceful time. Multiple times in my life, I was had a duffel bag thrown at me at two o'clock in the morning, say, you have 15 minutes to grab everything you can get. We're going to get out of here. 
And the only thing I would ever bring with me was my comic books. Comic books and superheroes were kind of my escape. I would, there were a lot of times where I'd be reading superheroes and behind me was extreme violence and massive destruction. And I was just trying to escape into my own world. And then as I grew older, I internalized that. I was the fat one. I was smelly. I was told I was worthless. I was bullied a lot at every school I went to and then bullied even more at home. Mm. And I started to adopt that darkness as myself, that I was going to be the, the worst. If, if you say I'm bad, okay, that's who I'm, I must be. I must be the bad one. There's good people and there's bad people. I'm the bad people. So I'm going to grow up that way. And you said you, I, said you almost even felt comfort in the darkness. What, how I do that? The, well, when you live in that kind of hell for so long, when you, when, when that, that much trauma becomes your existence for so long, it, it becomes comforting in a way. And you, you find a way to make that yourself. When I was scrambling to figure out who I was and I discovered who I was, was the worthless smelly one. And so being uncomfortable, basically. Yeah. You become comfortable being uncomfortable. And in a strange way, actual comfort becomes alien. Like people who come, who were when I was in that spot, when I was moving from place to place and I was the dirty, smelly kid and going in grade school, if some social worker at a school were to say, penetrate that a little bit and say, Oh no, you're a really good kid. You're going to be okay. Then you're lying to me. Cause obviously you don't know who I am. Wow. You, you must not see who I am if you think I'm good. And so that, that becomes after a while that really start can become your personality. And once I moved into my teen years, then would you that, try to convince them? No, no, you're wrong. This is who you, I am. I'm going to show you. You do because when you're told you're worthless enough, you do everything you can to make everybody agree with you. And that's what I was doing. I was, I was toxic. I was mean. I, I, I became the best. If, if I was going to be worthless, I was going to be good at being worthless. And it got worse as I grew older. The more I, the, the, in my young years, I still tried to be sensitive and still tried to be nice and still tried to be into poetry and, and, and reading and all that just kept on getting crushed more and more and more. So as I became 12, 13 years old, I became more toxic. I became the bully. I wrapped that darkness like a spiky blanket around me where I, I, it would keep everybody away except for the very few that understood that kind of pain themselves and it would draw them closer. And I, 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 around 13 years old, I started cutting myself that I, I would, I would describe my living situation back then. Like I was living in a giant tsunami of pain and anger, just, just sloshing back and forth. Like I would come home to extreme violence. of so my mom and my stepdad just beating each other senseless and rocking up crack cocaine all over the place, just bad stuff all the ways. And just, I had no agency over it, just complete chaos all around me. And I, when I cut myself, I found that that gave me a little bit of normalcy in a weird way, even though it was painful. And even though it was destructive, that gave me something that was real when none of my, none of the rest of my life felt real. And anybody around me looked at me like I was unreal. Like I was, I was surrounded by people that weren't friends, but they were what I call disaster groupies. People that want that they didn't have anything like me in their world. So they wanted to kind of live vicariously through my damage and kind of to, to see how far they could push me into the dark. And I, as I was, that was be about 13, 14 years old. And instead of when we would sit around and with me and these disaster groupies, I'm, I'm mostly homeless at, the, at this time. I can't take what's living at home. So I'm bouncing from place to place, either sleeping on friends' couches or sleeping in fields or sleeping, just kind of 
early stages of teenage homelessness where I still have a little bit of a support system socially. And so how when old I'm were you at this point? About 13, 14 years old. Okay. Maybe, maybe 14. And so I'm hanging out with these disaster groupies. And instead of talking about girls or sports or movies, we talk about killing people. We talk about if you're going to kill 10 people, what would you do? And if you're going to kill 20 people, what would you do? And it was kind of the fiction of the group. And looking back, it was, it was just a bunch of depressed kids navigating depression without any kind of adult supervision or guidance at all. Mm-hmm. And we, but that was how we were choosing to do it. We were, we were, we were, we saw the damage we were in and we were trying to adjust to our environment as best we could. We kids adapt and kids will adapt to whatever environment you put them in. And if you put them in pain, they're going to adapt to the pain. Mm-hmm. And that the pain, the, the abuse at home just continued to spiral out, spiral out at about 15 years old. I left home. I, I left. Finally, I could, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I started living in the field behind the, the restaurant Casa Bonita. If you ever watched the TV show South Park, they actually did a whole episode on Casa Bonita. It's that restaurant that I was living behind. Okay. And at the time it was just a field and I had been cutting myself really bad and the abuse at home got really bad. And it was, I, this night I was actually in my friend's shed. I had a friend because it was raining really bad. And so I, I, I went to his shed and, and it was, I was about almost 16 years old and it was two o'clock in the morning, the pouring rain, the shed was an old tool shed, had a wood roof with wood slats with gaps in between the slats of the roof. So the rain was coming down. You could see the stars up above. And I was, oh, was in this, this big, a, was this a disaster groupie? No, this was this, this see, that's, I was going to mention him afterwards because okay. this, he was a separate kind of friend. Okay. Um, so he, his name was Mike and Mike was my only actual friend and he's, that I think of at the time. And he's still my best friend to this day. He's uncle to my kids. Mike was lived the polar opposite life that I had. I met Mike when I was 12 and he was 10. We met bonded over comic books and it ended up being that we, we, we love, we loved stories and art and talking. So we would just sit for hours in his room and just talk about everything. And he lived the exact opposite life of mine. Very well-to-do family, very loving and supportive. The, his parents still live in that house to this day. So it was a really big three-story house with a full basement, nice yard, like really nice, well, uh, well-off family. He, he had he went to college. He went got all of his clubs. He any all of his all of his uh, hobbies were really encouraged. Just the the if if the things that I went through, basically one to one, he had he was doing a much better job at. And over my time of bouncing from place to place, his house kind of became my home base. He was, since he never moved, he was kind of my island of normal in that ocean of chaos that I had. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, when I was at my bottom, I was in his shed and he had been sneaking me out food for the last couple of days because his parents wouldn't let me sleep in the house because I was dirty and smelly. And they thought that I would stay in their car, stay in their chairs and stuff. So I probably would have because I hadn't washed my clothes in months by this point. Yeah. And uh, um, so I'm in his shed and I'm cutting myself really, really bad to the point where there's like a pool of blood underneath. Me. And I think I got to do something. I got to get myself help. So uh, along the way of my life, social services, I'd intervened a couple of times and they came and tried to get us, tried to, that's why we ran from house to house a couple, a couple of times was because social workers were there. 
And so I thought I'm going to call social services on myself and see if I can't get some help. And so I knocked on Mike's back door and got his, his mom came to the phone book and I borrowed bus fare from her and set up an appointment for later that afternoon. It was like seven o'clock in the morning when I called because it was dawn. I woke up at dawn and uh, the meeting wasn't until three or four in the afternoon. And when I got there, they didn't just bring me in. They'd also called in my mom. And my mom was the most practiced liar I've ever known. She got, she managed to run from house to house and managed to get 40 different houses without it with, while being evicted constantly and evading authorities and constantly enrolling me in new schools. So she, she was very good at lying, very good at making up fictions. And even though I sat down at this therapy, uh, I sat down to this, this uh, social worker's table and she asked what was wrong. And I produced a bloody razor blade. It was a square razor blade, the kind of like from a box cutter. I threw it on the table and I said, this is what's wrong. I feel like I'm nothing. I feel like I'm worthless. I, I feel like I'm at my bottom. And she's, my mom got her to believe that I was making it all up and that I was just doing it for attention. And they sent me home with my mom. Yeah. And as we drove away, we got like three blocks from the place. My mom turned to me and she snarled. And she had this mean look on her face. Next time you should do a better job. I'm not buy you the razor blades. And I just, okay, you want to see a monster? I'll show you now. I, I ran straight into that dark. Like the, for the next nine months, I was just burning every bit of my positive down. You think I'm bought, you think I'm bad. I'll show you that you're right. I'll, if you think I'm good, I'll prove that you're wrong. I will do everything I can to be as toxic and mean and nasty as possible. If, if I had someone who was even slightly friendly to me, I did I best I could to find a way to offend them in a personal way and do that. Like not just be mean, but offensive, gross mean, the kind of mean that makes you never want to talk to me again. And I, during that time, I also snuck into my family members' houses and I was trying to be as nice as possible so I could sneak in. And I stole every picture of me before 15 years old and burned them. <sighs> I was basically trying to annihilate my existence looking back. And after about nine months of that, uh, which I call, looked back now, I call it my scorched earth time. Where you I hated was, yourself. I hated. I hated myself and everything around it. I, I was. I was trying to to show. I was. If you think I'm a monster, I'll show you what a monster is. And I was going to be the best monster possible. I was going to. I was going to show you exactly what it's like. And so, in that time, uh, after that nine months, I was at my bottom again. And this time, I didn't even have Mike shed. I was in the field behind Casa Bonita. I, my, my, I hadn't taken my shoes off in like three weeks and I didn't, didn't have socks on at all. I didn't own socks. So my feet were literally rotting off my body. I was surviving off of the free samples in the grocery store and trying to evade the police during the daytime. So they wouldn't arrest me for truancy. And I, 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 I was, that was it. I was at the very bottom and I, th I thought, okay, last time I warned him I was coming in and that was the most toxic thing that ever happened to me. So I'm not warning him this time. And across the street from the high school I was nominally at, I was enrolled in the school, but I wasn't at the school. You, I, I would go to the school, but I wouldn't go to any classes because, again, truancy. If you weren't at the school, they would arrest you for truancy. So I had to be at on-school grounds. But I would, the only classes I ever actually attended, strangely enough, were choir and English class. Went to every one of those because, for some reason, choir class, choir teachers seem to always have an affinity for depressed kids. I don't know why that is, but it, it seems to happen that way. Um, but so uh, across the street from that high school, there was a building that said mental health. And I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it was for, but it said mental health. And like I said, I wasn't going to warn them. So I was going to show up. So I showed up and a young lady saw me. She was in her early twenties. 
And I don't really remember much of that conversation because all I remember is the very end of it, which is when she said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. I can't help you. And I walked out of that door and it was dark. I I remember that it was dark, like seven, eight o'clock at night. I walked out of that door and I felt my brain break. Like I felt it like, felt like it shattered like a mirror, like just, just broke. And I found out what was underneath that tsunami. When you go underneath that whole tsunami of pain and you hit the bottom of it, it gets really quiet and it gets really still because you don't really have anything left to care about. And like, what are they going to do? You're going to cut my arm off. I'm going to die. You're going to, you're going to put me in jail. I'll, they're going to feed me they're, I don't have any more bottom. This, this is the bottom. Now. And so at that point, I knew what I was going to do. My plans crystallized in an instant. I, I already had the, the actual plan mapped out from hanging out with my disaster group friends. I knew what I, I was either going to attack the school or the mall. I knew that they were both full of targets, but not soft targets. It's important to note that neither one of the places I was going to go were what we classify as soft targets. There were uniformed police officers in the school at all times. And there was actually a police station a couple doors down from the mall food court that I had targeted. And the only difference in those two targets was the time I got the gun. Mike didn't know what I had planned, but he knew the hell I was living in. He, it was his shed that I was sleeping in. And he, he saw the whole time Mike was my friend. There was never one time ever that he came to my house for dinner. He spent the night at my house. I, I spent the night at his house a lot because I didn't have anyone else to be. But never once in my whole life did he ever come to my house for a time. That was, was because too much violence, too much anger. And he knew, he saw the hell I was in and he brought me inside and he was like, dude, you're going to be okay. You're, you would tell me, I, I don't know how much, how language can go on this podcast. So I'll be, I'll keep it uh, family friendly. But he would tell me that you're a good kid in the crap world is what he would tell me. And he would, he, he brought me in, sat me down, get, we watched a movie, he gave me a meal and he treated me like I was a person. And he did it at a time when I felt absolutely inhuman. It was just, I felt like I was just a walking ball of destruction waiting to explode. I was just my, I was death waiting to happen. And he treated me like I was just a kid in pain. And it was like, it was like a splash of water in my face. It was like setting my feet down when I was flying through a tornado. It, it's, it was like resetting the clock back to humanity for me is what it felt like. It was like, it was like setting myself back to being a person. Mm. And it was the most amazing thing. I didn't end up leaving his house for five, six days. I never ended up going to get the gun. And it, he saved my life. And I just hope that we can see those kids that we look at as the ones in the dark, the ones that we think deserve our love the least and give them our love the most because they need it. And so do we, 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 we have all these children on the edge of dark that are, they feel like they need to explode. They feel like the world's just terrible and we need to not prove that they're right. We need to show them that they're not right because if we if, if all we do is show that kid in the dark that he's terrible and that he's a threat and that that we're going to be afraid of everything that he does, we're just showing that he's right that he's worthless, right? That he's right to be afraid of everything. And maybe we could stop the next me before it happens. I see. I, the, I my heart broke so much, especially when I saw that last one in Uvalde. I saw that last shooting in Uvalde, and it was so. I saw me. 
I, I saw my story just without the other end. And like, it was, it, it breaks my heart to think about it. That he, it looks like he went down the same path that he starts in, in a very abusive and oppressive and violent home in the very formative ages of life where he has no control over any of it. Mm-hmm. And then that causes him to become a toxic youth who bullies and is toxic to everybody around. And that causes him to then be bullied by everybody around. And that causes him to go even further and become an even worse monster and go and it refines the pain even more, boils away all the humanity. And then near the end, the, the, the most blatant sign was there was two of them was first I saw an interview with his aunt where she said something like, Oh, you just don't understand. You don't know what, what he went through. And I'm like, Oh my God. You're right. We don't. I heard that so many times growing up. I heard that from so many times from my family get, trying to, to make everybody not pay attention to the hell I was living in. Oh, you just don't understand. You're right. We don't. So tell somebody. And, and then I saw that like two weeks before the shooting, he showed up to school with razor marks all over his face. That to me is the most blatant sign of I'm hurting me. Somebody notice. Yes. Yes, and on your face. On your face. A place that you can't cover. You can't cover it. And it's, I'm, I'm hurting me, is what that says. And, and th- that is by no means an excuse. I am not, to anybody listening, I'm not trying to justify or excuse any of these actions. I'm, I'm simply trying to shine a light on a path that people don't like to look at. It's, it's not to excuse the path. It's just to show that the path exists. And, and maybe we can, that we have, there's a large amount of kids. There's a very, very small amount. They're going to pull, actually follow through with the attack. Very small amount. They're actually going to pull the trigger and commit the attack. But there seems to be a large amount of people in that gray area before solid black that feel like they could, should, or might. And those are the ones we can help. Those are the ones we can remind that you are a human and you're a person in pain. And we, this, this week, you'll make it through it that as deep and intense as this pain feels, that it will pass and you will in fact change and that tomorrow it will be different than today. No matter what happens, it will, it, it's going to be different. It might be worse, it might be better, but it will be different. And if you, if you get lost in the now, you'll lose the future. That is such an incredibly powerful statement. And let's talk about that for a moment because I think, I don't wanna say the majority, but I know a lot of people watched the news of Uvalde and they said, that young man is evil. He is, uh, you know, it was just all judgment, all, all disgust. Uh, and, and I watched something like that. In fact, I was uh, interviewed right after that. And I said, I can tell you what the profile of that shooter is. I was almost arguing with the person who was interviewing me. And he said, no, you can't. You have no idea. I said, yes, I can. I can tell you that he was a person in pain and he did not have the skills and tools to process that pain. That's simple because somebody that loves themselves and can love and connect with others doesn't want to harm themselves and they don't want to harm other people. And of course, it turned out to be like that. I have been trying to change people's perception that when they see an outcome as disastrous of that, and even Sandy Hook, 
uh, you know, this is uh, we're talking nine and a half years ago and then over 350 school shootings since then. Uh, and, and let's talk about Uvalde. I mean, when we see things like that, we can't jump to judgment and say, oh, they are evil. No, we have to get curious, get curious. Yes. Why did they do what they did and how could we have prevented that? Well, it's important to note that nobody starts in the pitch black. No, nobody, you, you don't, you don't start there. That that's where you end. You end in the pitch black where it's so total destruction, but you didn't start there. Not a single one of them did. I can, I can say that for sure. Not a, single, not a single school shooter started in the pitch black because I started as black as you can get. And even I didn't start in the pitch black. You have, you, there's gradients of, you, you go through gradients of pain. The way I look at it is we all, you know, about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. Where, where you have to establish your base survival. If you establish your base survival, then you can have a want. If you can have a want, then you can dream for something. And if you can dream for something, you can aspire for something. And it goes up into a pyramid. Now take that Maslow's hierarchy needs and flip it upside down. Same pyramid, just flip it upside down. That is the pyramid of pain. And at the bottom of it, that point, that apex point, that apex point is pain and self-immolation. That right there is that's where it all branches out from. And as you go up that pyramid, it will express itself differently depending on the upbringing that we have and the language that we have the the, the language that we have chosen and how to express our emotions will then cause a different branch for us on that tree. So for men, it tends to be more aggressive. We tend to be, for men, violence is currency, especially when you're young. Aggression, aggression and violence is currency. You can be, you can lack intelligence, you can lack looks, but if you can break something, you're okay. If you can break something, you can punch something. If you're a guy, you can, you can exist in the man world. Is that power? Is that agency? It's, it, it's, it's currency. It's, just, it's, social, it's social currency. It's just that that in this world, if you are, it doesn't matter that your your intelligence is not currency, your 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 uh, guile isn't currency, but your strength, your strength is social currency. If you can break something, people will admire you, people will listen to you. So, in on the female side, it tends to be, from my estimation, not being a woman. So, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I fear you. I, I'm just still thinking what you're about what you're saying. Yeah. Like they'll admire you or even fear they'll you. Fear you, which is, which is still currency. You get to get what you want. I want right. an action, whether it be a positive response or a negative response. I want a response and I'm able to achieve that response. In right. the male world, you, if you, you can want a response by being smart and you might just get ignored. Then you'll just get ridiculed. You're wanting a response. Is but it kind because, of like wanting, a, when you say wanting a response, it's like wanting to be seen. Yeah, it's just wanting simple acknowledgement. To be acknowledged, right? So if you're not going to acknowledge me for my intelligence or my wit or even the fact that I'm a human being sitting here in this room in front of you, then I will make you acknowledge yes. me by, yes. by acting out. Yes. And we all want to be seen. I really believe, so that was a movie way back in the day called The Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler. And there's a little tiny bit in that movie where they're sitting at a bar and one guy says to the other one, all I really want is for someone to hold me and tell me I'm okay. Mm. I fundamentally feel that's all that we all want. Mm. We all want to be held and told that we're okay. And it, it depends on who is doing that and where we're getting that positive affirmation, that positive sense of being from as to where that, that positive side of that branch goes. Now, in the negative side, it will push us the same direction. If, if we're craving that positive adulation, but we are existing in the negative pyramid, 
then we have to navigate the spikiness and the hazards of the of the world around us and find where we can be positive like the to to and the refinement when i talk about refining to be a better monster and trying trying to fit into that mold when you're a little kid you're trying to figure out where you fit where where's the one thing that i can do where's the thing that i can do that gets me people to to say hey that's cool every kid wants that they that's why they write pictures or draw pictures that's why they write poems that's why they stand up and do songs that's why school talent shows exist it's because kids want to be able to have that one thing that says, hey, I'm a person. They're, they're just figuring out what being a person is. And they're trying to figure out what that is. They're finding their own personhood. And in that spot, they have to have something that lets them be a person, whether it's what they can write or what they can read or what, what they can act or something. Kids always find their niche of what they got. And when they when you go up into being, if you, if your entire world is living in that kind of chaos when you're living in nothing but abuse. If you're living in in where every adult around you is showing how they modeled their interactions with violence and anger and pain, mm. that, that's going to be your your currency when you're trying to use it to speak. You're, the only language you're going to learn is the language of violence and the language of, of abuse. And we see that in young kids that lash out and, and bullies that, that say extremely inappropriate things on the schoolyard. And they kids, again, you don't start in the pitch black. You got drugged there and you, or you, you ended up there. That kid didn't start. He didn't come out of the womb cursing and using foul language to, to that extent that right. that five-year-old didn't say the C word because he got, came up with it on his own. Right. That, that didn't happen that way. There, there's there's a through way to that. And that first, that, that formative couple of years up until about five or six, I, I believe will set in stone where your branches will go along that path. And if you are set to be, if, if you are shown early on that pain and anguish and violence is all that we have, and not only that, but support can be damaging, and things like the authorities who try to help can be a can be a, a peril. Then everything becomes a spiky, uh, damaging spot. And even something like reaching out for therapy can cause you to lose all your world. And so it's you you if if trying to reach out for the good can cause everything to collapse, then you're going to figure out a way to exist and refine your existence in the bad. And you're going to be the bad, and that branches out. In my, as, as we get older, we, it ends up uh, again in that pyramid. You start at a point, but as it gets older, that plane flattens out and gets wider. So it comes out in a lot of different ways. And you have the gangbangers who are trying to fit in with their clique and try and, and, are, and are robbing people because their, their buddies say they should. And then you have the model who's throwing up in a cup before her photo shoot because she has to destroy herself to be beautiful. And then you have me who is trying to burn the world down because I'm invisible and I'm trying to scream out for someone, please listen to me. And all of that looks to the outside like it's all different things. Like those are three separate issues we need to, to face. We need to face beauty issues and gang violence and mental health. That's that's not what we're facing. We're facing three branches on one tree based in this point of self-pain and, and self-immolation. That I'm going to burn myself up to make myself fit in my world. And and I the I right now and and you see it. You've sadly seen it firsthand with the, the people coming after you with the crazy conspiracy nuts that we're in a really crazy spot right now where everything's splitting at the seams. All of our all of our bases of knowledge and all of our 
our our common threads seem to be fraying in a really deep way. They, they seem to be just breaking apart. But the one thing that seems to unite us from what I've seen is that sense of pain and isolation and loneliness. That that sense that I felt like I wasn't worth enough and I wasn't good enough. And maybe not only will it maybe help us see that that kid in that dark needs to be seen as a human, but so does that guy in the red hat. And so does that kid in the rainbow scarf. That that sense of loneliness might be the thing that unites us all finally. And it's a sad way to do it, but if it can bring us together, then it's, it's the shared humanity. It's the, it's the fact, like you said earlier, it's the fact that we're all people. When I watched that Alex Jones trial, I did, I saw, I saw a guy scrambling to get to keep himself afloat in his own brain, not not afloat financially, not afloat within in it with his standing in his so in his world. He's he's a celebrity in what he's doing, trying to keep himself afloat mentally with his own structure for how he has built his fiction. That he put himself into his fiction as the star so much that when they're when you penetrate that and you break those scaffoldings down and you break down the sense of self identity, his own version of his spiky blanket that he wrapped around himself that is offensive to a lot of people and for the tiny group of people that seem to agree with them, we'll bring him close. And then he it's, it's, it's a different colored zebra, but it's the same kind of zebra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. Um, I, I wonder, so I want to ask you a couple of questions. Yeah. Um, and, and here's the burning question on everybody's mind today. And we haven't seemed to be able to figure it out. Although I know lots of people have tried. Aaron, how do we prevent school shootings? I don't think there's a way. I, I First off, I have to caveat this by saying, I think that the question itself is flawed in premise because I think that, that the search for fixing all school shootings is one of the reasons why we don't fix any of the school shootings. So I think to, to, to limit the scope and make it more effective, I would say, how do we prevent a school shooting? Because the, I, I feel that we as a, as a society tend to have the want to find a panacea. We want to find a fix-all. And if that's not going to fix everything, if this one law is not going to solve all of it, then I'm not going to pass it. And if this, if this one gun regulation is not going to fix everything, then we're not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to be moved from a panacea approach to a more incremental change approach. So and, uh, one step at a time, you have, you have to move forward one, with one step. Otherwise, you're just not going to move. And, and so and that means one individual at a time. And one that individual at a time. every one of us taking responsibility to and being part of the solution. Precisely. And yeah. which, which goes hand in hand with what my actual solution is, which is look at that kid in the dark as a person. Engage. When I, I was asked earlier by law enforcement officials earlier this afternoon, actually, what what could they do to try to address these kinds of, of school violence when they're dealing at scale. And I said, well, the hardest, the hardest fact to realize is you could input all the hardening the schools and arming the teachers measures you want and make yourself think that you're doing something good. But all that money is going to be not nearly as effective as learning what one kid likes to listen to in his music days and what the other kid likes to do for his hobby and what that other kid likes to have for lunch. Those things will end up having massive impact because then you will have seen that kid as a human and as a person and as a peer, and you'll be then they will interact with you in the same way, and you might just become their island in their ocean of chaos. Maybe they're living their entire world, living in that pain and living in that hell. And if you're that one person that doesn't see any of that, that doesn't see 
the dirty, smelly, abused, angry kid and instead sees, oh, wow, you really like stand-up comedy. Let's listen to that. Check that out. Look at this guy that I like. Oh, you like artwork? You like this one thing? The, 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 it's when you are living, the closer you get into that dark, the less your humanity exists. The more humanity gets boiled away and the more you enter into a place, just like Alex Jones did in a way, where you, enter, you become a fiction. You become the fiction you tell yourself. Mm-hmm. And the fiction you tell yourself in, in that dark becomes really bad. You tell yourself you're terrible. You tell yourself you're worthless, that everybody around you hates you, that everybody around you doesn't, that, that they know the real you, that helps you hate you more, that, that these, that the people that say they like you are lying to you, that the supports you have are lying to you, that you aren't good enough yourself. You tell yourself that so much that it becomes a refrain and a mantra that just repeats in your head. And to when you the closer you get the further you get into that the less grounding in actual real world things you have and the more powerful it becomes to have a tiny bit of of normalcy happen like the the concept when i when i was absolutely in my worst when i was when i had planned the attack and i was that when I, my brain broke for how, for mike to even introduce the concept of liking a movie mm. Like the concept of liking a thing was almost alien. It was, it was like, it was like antique. It was, it was like, like nostalgic in a way. Like, oh yeah, I used to enjoy things. Mm. I used to, I used to like food. Like, like, and it, and it's really is the tiny granular bits of humanity. And, and that's why, and oddly enough, the, the inverse can be very damaging. The, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of negative positive attention where if, if you're in that dark spot and if someone comes up to you and says, okay, well, I have this program. We have 12 steps you get into. I need you to have a journal. I, we have this step and this step and this step. And have you talk to this person and this person and this person. And it turns into white noise. It's just as depersonalizing or it can be just as depersonalizing as a person who recoils in fear like you're a monster. Mm-hmm, if, mm-hmm. If, if, if your entire world treats you like you're either broken or if, if you're, there's something to be fixed or something to be feared, neither one of those are a person. Yeah. And, and the only way to, to fix either one of that, a, a good example, I have, I have a 15 year old. Okay. And I personally had a hard time interacting with therapy because of my bad times when I was a teen until my late adulthood. I just could not, I, I had a hard time engaging with therapy on, on a uh, authentic level and having and, and feeling like it was authentic to me until my late adulthood. I can understand but, that. Yeah, but I'm watching my 15-year-old who had to go through therapy because of his own issues from his birth mom, just separate things. But watching him go through therapy, there's been two distinct brands of therapists. Okay, There's been the first kind, which is that, that kind of studious checklist kind that I mentioned, where it's that, okay, well, we have to have a checklist, we have to have a journal, and we have these programs. And and again, like I said, that turns into white noise. That completely bounced off like a rock skipping on water. We went through four or five of those therapists. Nothing, nothing was sticking. Are we you got eating? There. Are you sleeping? Are you enjoying things? Do you but, get together with your friends? Well, you know, that's the next kind. The next kind of therapist was, oh yeah, what'd you like? What'd you have for dinner last night? Oh, that was tasty. Oh, you like BTS? I listened to that too. Let's jam out. And now that therapist we invite to Christmas because that therapist was, and, and after that initial conversation, you're able to get the same information. You're able to get to that same point where, okay, well, we need to make sure you have a journal and make sure you were expressing your feelings and all the therapeutic things you needed, but you broke through by seeing a person. 
you, you broke through by not seeing a checklist on your checkboard, but by seeing a kid in pain who might like things like you like, because adults, adults, I think have a tendency to put things at arm length, arm's length and, and forget that I was a kid in pain once too. And if, when, when it, to, the more you can deal the, the ease, the best way to stop potential school shootings is to meet a kid in pain on his own terms and show him that he, that he can be acknowledged and, and seen as a human. That does not mean to, to excuse anything, to see them on their own terms see, see them, meet them as, as, a, as an equal in humanity that, 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 because no one else does their whole world is treats them like a threat or treats them like they need to recoil or, or be that, be that Island of normal in their ocean of chaos. I, I love that. You know, we're, we're all so busy and we're all kind of like overwhelmed and stressed out and looking at all these things to do when really we should just slow down and so you want to know, look I, at I, humanity. I, I, I'll bet there's one thing there that I don't know if you noticed, but I'll bet it had a bigger impact in what you said than you think. I bet one of the key things that you told that kid was that you can, that you can paint, but you can't draw. I think that that little bit of vulnerability, uh, that little bit of breaking protocol in a tiny way, I was—I think that's important too. That to to show to to show the kid that not only are you in, do you have foibles too, and are you not perfect, and you have your own mistakes, but that the structure you're in is a structure put by somebody else that you're operating in. That this is like because they—that's something that a kid can identify with. A kid in school can identify with the fact that you're dealing with a program that you have to run in as long as you're a human doing it. It's, yeah. it and, and it's really important to know that that kid in the dark, they'll test you. They'll push you and they will push and push and push to make sure you're not faking the funk because everybody else in their world is going to lie to them and everybody else in their world is going to glad hand them and, and, and smile at them and say they're okay and then try to get them in trouble behind their back or they're going to all of they're going to be it's peril. Everybody in the world is perilous. And you need to prove through consistency that you're not, that you're the normal one, that you're the good one. And the way you do that is through that seeing the human, seeing the, seeing the kid on their level. That, that moment, I'll bet, I'll bet that if you had left it at I draw two, it wouldn't have had nearly as much impact as if you hadn't included that little bit that, well, I can't draw, but I can paint. Because that showed that you're vulnerable. You're a person too. That you, have, you have something that you can't do correctly. And again, when you're, when you're dealing with tiny grasps and shreds of humanity, those little tiny threads can mean everything. It really can mean everything. And a great example of that is if you ask Mike today, if you ask Mike today, what did he do? To me, it was life-changing. To me, even now talking about it, I cry. It's cathartic. It's one of the most important moments that's ever happened in my existence. It's to the point where with him, my relationship with him is he's the only human in the world where if he insulted my wife, I'd be like, well, baby, what'd you do to make me call you a name? Like, like I, that's, he's the only one that gets that. Okay. But if you ask him what he did, if you ask Mike, what he did, he just says, I just did what a friend should do. Mm. It, he didn't even know that it was important until I came out with it years later to him. He, it wasn't, it was just a day to him. That was just how he should treat a friend. And it, it, to me, that's a really important thing. It's really important to know that you don't know how much your tiny hello and how your how, how, how much little effort it takes on your end to completely change someone else's world, either for the good or for the bad. The bad can be just as effortless. It can be just as easy to crush that dark kid and push him into the dark even more. 
by recoiling in fear a little bit like oh i'm oh i don't know i don't know about him i don't i don't know should we go hang out with johnny he seems like he might be upset well maybe he's upset because he's really lonely maybe he's upset because the last three people he asked to hang out with did the same thing you just did and all he wants to do is just be around humans we crave human contact we crave human contact to the point where in prison the biggest damn punishment you can get is solitary that's right that's that's the biggest punishment we can give our worst criminals as keeping them away from other people. And and so if, if when if that's where we punish our murderers with, what do you think it's like for that kid who is isolated and everybody around him does that? It's it's that solitary confinement and whenever when you're also around with other people. It's I, I think you also uncovered something really important though, Aaron. And and I'm looking back at this uh interaction that I described for you. And you've You've said, give a lot to those that deserve it the least, right? And, and I have to admit that I, I didn't want to do that. I actually, actually, you know, I look out to my audiences. I try to see the people that are smiling and nodding and they're getting it right. And then there are those that don't seem to be listening, uh, or, or caring. And he was one of those. He never looked at me. He looked down the whole time. And I thought, well, look, everybody else is getting it. And so I can't, and I, I literally had this conversation. So I can't reach one person. Everybody else got it. So maybe nobody can reach him. And then he happened to be the person. Uh, I felt a tug on my sleeve and he had sent someone over to ask me to come over to him. And I thought, oh my God, out of everyone, he would be the last person, honestly, mm -hmm. that I would want to go talk to. And, and I had a little trepidation because he didn't look friendly and mm -hmm. I didn't know what he had done or, or, or what he was thinking. He didn't seem to like me very much. He didn't seem to care about my message at all. And I was shocked that he wanted to talk to me. So it actually took courage to, to go and to sit down. And, and I felt a deep compassion for him, but I think that this is another really important thing. You say, give a lot to those that deserve it to the least, but, but that's not Well, it's important to note that, what, that I say it as give love to the ones you feel deserve it the least. In that, I started a group. I started a group on Facebook. If anybody wants to find me, I'm on Facebook. I have a, a group called You Are Not Alone. It's all one word, but each one's capitalized. You are not alone. Um, it's about 3,000 members and about 140 different countries all over the planet. Um, it's all based around love and support for the people in this kind of area. But it also is full of professionals and therapists and doctors because it's important to note that I am not one. So I, I know when a conversation with me needs to actually hit the people who actually can that have authority over those matters. I'm just a guy that understands pain. I'm not, I don't have any kind of actual authority in it, but I know people who do. So um, that group alone has prevented over 30 suicides. Wow. And it is the most amazing thing. It's like a self-perpetuating positivity machine. There, there are people in there that I routinely get messages that thank you. I'm here because you're, this group has kept me alive. And I, I, I can't take credit for it, but I am the most proud if I could, if if that's the achievement that I'm known for is helping that, then I, I couldn't be prouder in my life. That is your, your proof of the the formula that we teach that when you have the courage to step outside of your own story, your own self, your own pain to help others, 
you help and heal yourself. So literally like you're helping and healing yourself while you're healing others. And then I have one more question, Aaron, and that's about your parents. I mean, I know how important forgiveness has been in my life. And, and, and I did that as an adult. Uh, I, I know that it's different when you are a child that has been abused by parents. I know that that is so painful. I know that your ACEs score, adverse childhood experiences is is off the charts. It's 10 plus. And oh, I, I, I just found out about ACEs when I was at this concert uh, conference on uh, on last Thursday. And uh, looking at the menu, I hit all 10 before, before at birth, like right away. Uh, I, I hit 10 before I even have my first memory. Like that was... Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, well, I, I could I could add seven or eight to that list. Okay. So for, for one thing, everybody that's listening, here's somebody with with 10 plus aces right off the bat, and you are a productive, beautiful person that loves, that has four kids and and a family and you know, is, is, uh, has a job and, and has overcome. So it's possible. It's possible. There is hope. I mean, you give me and everybody that's listening so much hope. My, my last question is just kind of, where are you with your parents? Have you resolved that at all? And just curious about that. So sadly, no. Um, so my birth father, I, I, I don't know if he's still alive. I, he's, he is the one person that I'd be perfectly fine if he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't, he's the most violent human I've ever known. I haven't seen him since I was like five years old. Uh, but the stuff that he went, put me through, I'm okay with never coming in contact with that human ever again. Absolutely. Um, but my, my mom, my stepdad did die about six, seven years ago. Uh, my mom, I, I would be open to fixing that relationship or open to, I would open to, to not fixing. Cause I don't believe it's my job to fix that relationship, but I would, I would be open to discussion and, and, and um, forgiveness along those lines. If there were any sort of acknowledgement or ownership of any of it, mm-hmm. which I believe is a very important part when dealing with toxic parents in particular, that the toxicity doesn't stop unless there's ownership and acknowledgement of actions. It's very important that you have to own what happened, mm-hmm. see what happened, and be able to stop what happened in order to move forward. Yes. If the abuse and toxicity is still continuing, but they're just saying, oh, I'm sorry, that's just a continuation of the abuse. That is not, that's not a rectification. That's not a fixing of it. That is just a, a, a continuation of, of the damage. That, that's, that's enabling, honestly, is, is all that comes and and so my last contact with my mom was about four years ago i was just leaving a live tv thing i was on a show called daily blast live here in denver and it was live or it's it's a live news show they do it live in three time zones so it's a full hour live like a day, daytime magazine show and uh i just got off that tv appearance i was having a really cool semi celebrity day which is Weird. I had to adjust to that with my own self too, about how tragedy equals attention for me. That's a weird thing that I've had to get through that for some reason, me me talking about this stuff, people want to listen to it right around the time everybody else dies. And it's hard to wrap your brain around with that. So I was having one of those weird times where I'm both enjoying the fact that I'm coming home in a limo coming from a TV station, not being live TV, while also with what I was talking about. So I was 
it just had had that. I also just got off the phone with the guy telling me, yeah, I could do a TED talk. So I just got that moment. So really having one of those cool semi-celebrity moments. And then the next phone call I got was my mom. And it was my mom telling me that, in fact, she saw me on TV and I was a worthless piece of crap and should be dead. And that was the last time I talked to her. Uh, that was that was it. I, I had to block her on all social media um, because I just continued to get attacked from her and from my brother and my grandparents on that side, that side of the family, not because of what I'm saying, not not saying that I'm a liar or anything like that, just mm-hmm. that I am saying. Mm-hmm. And so my response from the beginning has been that I'll stop the instant you tell me one thing I'm saying that's not the truth. Mm-hmm. And if you're upset with me talking about what happened to me 30 years ago, but you're not paying attention to the man I am today, then I'm not the one that has an issue. That's right. That's and exactly. so I, while, while I would be open and I will be open in the future to rectifying that relationship and to, to at least resuming some form of relationship, mm-hmm. I, I cannot... I have done too much work in positivity for myself and for my family to allow that continued toxicity to infect my own world. And until there's any kind of acknowledgement of that toxicity from that end and any and attempt to fix it, I simply cannot. My kids have grown their entire lives without having to deal with anybody getting evicted or dealing with any crackheads or dealing with their mom hitting their dad or any any of that. They've, they've never seen any of that stuff. And I'm not going to bring it in because of my mom. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to traumatize my kids by introducing them to their grandma. Absolutely not. And you're making the right choice. And everybody that's listening, you know, it doesn't mean that you, you sometimes can't repair a relationship because it's, you are willing, but the other person is not at that place. And it doesn't matter because you have so successfully come back from such a hard place and you are providing hope for the world. Everybody that's listening, that it's possible. And it's not even uh, such a, a terribly hard thing to do. It's just being human. It's mm-hmm. just caring. It's having the courage to be vulnerable with someone and even ask a question and then actively listen to the response and form that connection. So well, on that, here's a note for that. Cause I, I, was, I study psychology and I've always found this fact, this fact fascinating. It's a true fact that when people are talking, they tend to not be actually listening. You tend to be preparing your next monologue. That's right. People are trying to prepare what they're going to say next, especially if you're on a, in a in a conversation that's not something like me and you are having right now where we're actively listening to each other because we're trying to fully observe what we're each saying and give good responses. A lot of times in social situations, it's really kind of fast and dirty almost. And so you kind of got to be on your feet. And so you, sometimes people aren't comfortable with that. So you you spend a lot of time monologuing and preparing what you're going to say next. And you only absorb 5 10% of what the other people are actually saying. If you can make an effort to not do that, if you can make an effort to consciously listen to the next person you talk to spend 20 minutes not trying to respond but actively trying to listen to them mm-hmm. listen to not only their words but how their mannerisms are and, and how they're holding themselves and how their breathing is and see all of them as a person you'll find yourself having a much more empathetic connection and a much deeper ability to understand the nuances of that person afterwards and it might give you the tools for your next conversation there. That's what I teach my kids all the time is you got to slow down. So you, you, you want, I understand you have something to say too, and you'll get to your chance to say, but let the other person you're talking to say and learn what that everybody you talk, everybody you talk to, you can learn something from and everybody you, you interact with. You can, you can get something from no matter who it is. 
whether it's some, regardless of how smart you think you are, you don't know everything. And there is something everybody else you meet knows that you don't. Absolutely. And can expand you as a human being. Thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us. I'm looking at the sign that's behind your head. It says, often it's the deepest pain, which empowers you to grow into your highest self. You are the epitome of that. Thank you so much for having the courage to share with our audience. Um, we're going to make sure that it gets out there. We'll give you a copy as well. And we will get everybody onto your Facebook page. That's so important. Actually, a, a current school shooter right now who is uh, actually undergoing a trial told me that that was one of the things that he would like to see is uh, he called it a, a call line, a call center where people could call in when they were in need. But this is exactly what that is, the Facebook page. So um, thank you. Thanks for sharing. You've given us so much, just a, just a treasure trove of things to do and not complicated, simple. We can all be part of the solution. In fact, we all have to take responsibility for what's going on in our world and be part of the solution. So Thank you, Aaron. I learned Thank so you much from you today. And uh, let's definitely keep in touch. And I would like to work with you going forward. Absolutely. I would love to work with you. Anything I could do to work with you going forward. First off, like I said, you've been such a great inspiration for me. Congratulations on all your great victories. You yeah. well deserved. Um, yeah. And and thank you for being a shining light of humanity in such a trying time. Seeing you give those little moments of kindness in humanity in a situation where obviously not anybody else would because everybody else is kind of ridiculing the fact that it happened, which I just see it as amazing. To me, it's just, that's what human beings should do. You, you should, you, that's, again, I'm an atheist. I'd wash the leper's feet. That, that's what you should do. You, you, we, should, we should be giving ourselves to our fellow man, regardless of how they've been treating us, because it's not about how they treat us. It's how we react and treat them in return. A hundred percent. And that's why we're here. I, I've realized that through my own pain, we are here to love and support one another, care for one another. In fact, that's how society operates. And if we want, we say that we want to live in a safe and peaceful and loving world, then we have to start actively doing something to help creating that. And you've given us so many different things that we can do. So uh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And for everybody just remember, give love to the ones you feel deserve it the least. They need it the most. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Have a good day. It's all part of us, we can all choose love.